we end our week together talking about trials and temptations. Uh, it's a sobering topic, but one very relevant to each of us uh, at some point, maybe to some of you right now. And we start with uh, what we know for sure. God tests us. He does. That's clear in texts like James 1, verses 3 to 4 and 1 Peter 1, 7. But then comes the question, does God ever tempt us? James 1.13 says, no, God never tempts us. But what really is the difference between being tested and being tempted? The sharp Bible question from a listener named Mike. Dear Pastor John, in APJ 694, you said that the word for temptation and the word for test are the same word in the Greek, perosmos. So how are we to understand the differences in meaning of the two words in passages where it talks about God testing us, in James 1, 3-4, and in 1 Peter 1, 7, and then in James 1, 13, where it says that God does not tempt anyone? So how do we put those texts together? Now that is an utterly crucial question. We so need to get that clear for God's honor and yeah. for our own peace of, of mind. So mm. let me set the stage as best I can so that everybody really can get on board with what the problem really is as, uh, the, as Mike has presented it here. So in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, it says, Now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And the word there, perosmos in uh, Greek could be translated temptations or testings, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may redound to praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. And then similarly, in James chapter 1, verse 2, it says, Count it all joy, brothers, when you meet various testings or trials or temptations of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let the steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And then, in verse 12 of that same chapter, James 1, he adds this amazing promise about the outcome of tested faith. He says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, same word, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Now, all these testings are merciful trials from the hand of God in the way he disciplines and purifies and stabilizes and preserves his children. We know that Jesus tested his disciples, John 5, 6. We know that God tested Abraham, Hebrews eleven seventeen. So, we set the stage for this problem first by establishing from 1 Peter and James that God does indeed test people. He does. He tests people. And the word there, perosmos or perazzo, is the same as the word for tempt. There's the problem. Hmm. He puts us through trials. Now, the second part of setting the stage for the problem is to observe in the very next verse of James 1, only verse 13, James uses the same word for testing, perazomai, and translates it tempt, and says, let no one say he is, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot 
be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Same word as the word for test. So that's the setting of the stage. So here's the double problem. First, when James says God tempts no one, the word tempt is the very same word in Greek for test. And we know God does test people. And second, second part of the problem, he says that God cannot be tempted. And yet we know that Jesus was tempted, same word, in the Gospels, in the wilderness, Matthew 4, 1, the Holy Spirit drove him out to be tempted, and Jesus is God in the flesh. So, James expects us to make a distinction in the meaning between the testing that God, in fact, does bring into our lives righteously and the tempting that God never does, even though he uses the same word for both of them. He expects us to make that same distinction in order to show that God is never tempted himself, and yet Jesus, who was God, was, in some sense, tempted. Now, that's the challenge that Mike sees in these verses, and he's asking about, and he's right to see them. I've seen them for years and wrestled <laughs> yeah. over and over again with how to, how to understand this, because this is James is not tripping up here because he knows exactly what he's doing since he puts the two words together back to back in two sentences. It's not like he forgot 10 years ago he used the word one way. <laughs> and I, I think the key to solving both of these problems is found in the next two verses, James 1, 14 and 15, and the way James carefully defines temptation. It's probably the, the, the nearest thing we have to an analysis of the temptation in the Bible where, where he is, is talking about our experience of it and how God doesn't experience it and he doesn't perform it. So here's what he says in verse 14. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So there are four steps in this process of what James is calling temptation. First, there's desire, which may at first be innocent. In fact, I think first most of them are innocent. Second, there is the desire becoming an enticement and an allurement across a line into sinfulness and sinful craving and sinful desire, like the desire of hunger, which is innocent, crossing the line into gluttony, or the desire of natural sexual appetite, which is innocent, crossing the line into lust or the desire of your paycheck, like it's, it's not wrong to want to be paid so you can pay your bills, crossing the line into greed. So that's the second step. Then, third, there's, there's the act of sinning itself in which the sinful desire is put into action. And then finally, step four, 
When that pattern of sin goes on without repentance, it results in eternal death. Now, I think the reason that James says God is not tempted, even though Jesus was tempted, is that the innocent desires like hunger or desire for sex or desire for our paycheck, all those innocent desires are the beginnings of being drawn toward what could be a sinful desire of gluttony, lust, greed. And in that sense, the awakening of that desire is a kind of temptation, but it has not become a full-blown temptation, for example, in the life of Jesus, because his hunger, which was an objective allurement toward bread when he was fasting, but it didn't cross the line into an evil desire of rebellion or disobedience or undue craving for what God had told him not to, to have. In fact, none of Jesus' desires in his whole life ever crosses the line into evil desire and therefore never gives birth to sin. So we can speak of him being tested or tempted in the sense that he's presented with objective allurements, like bread, when he's hungry, so that he experiences hunger or the desire, and in that sense, the temptation. But it's never taking him captive by allurements and enticements that cross the line into sinful desires. And in the same way, I would say God does not tempt because at that point, now this is really delicate here, so listen carefully. At that point in the human life where we cross the line from experiencing objective allurements, say like food, you smell a steak or see an ice yeah. cream cone, that, that, that point of, of feeling a, a legitimate desire, when we're lured across the line into sinful desire, like the second helping or something the doctor told you you shouldn't have or something that's really part of gluttony or lust, at that point of crossing that line, the Bible ordinarily describes God's action as handing us over. Mm. Or giving us up, Romans one twenty four, verse 26, 28, giving us up to our lusts, giving us up to a debased mind. In other words, God is not described as the positive, creative, active agent at the point where our desires become sinful. His action is a, as, as it were, if, you, if you're going to involve God by providence here, which I do, his action is a negative action in the sense that he hands us over. He lets us go. He gives us up to our sinning at that point. So I don't think James is contradicting himself. I think he expects us to make a distinction between temptation understood as, on the one hand, as objective allurement, which need not involve sin, and temptation understood, on the other hand, as the movement of that allurement across a line 
so that the desire becomes sinful, and the line between desire as a thankful, God-dependent desire and a desire as an assertive, self-indulgent desire is uh, crossed when the temptation happens, which he is saying God never experiences and God never performs. And if we step back and ask the question, why the New Testament would use the same word for testing and temptation, perhaps part of the answer is that every test really is a kind of temptation, and every temptation really is a kind of test. Our faith in God and our love for God are being tested with every temptation, and every test, if we do not act in faith, can result in our falling into temptation. So, when James says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. That same promise applies to resisting every temptation as well. Yeah, thank you, Pastor John. Yeah, it's a great Bible question. Mike, thank you for sending that in, and thank you for joining us today. You can ask a Bible question of your own, search our growing archive, or subscribe to the podcast, all at desiringgod.org forward slash John. Well, next week we have a question from a listener named Elizabeth. She asks, why Christ had to suffer in public to redeem us? Couldn't he have lived a perfect, law-abiding life in total isolation? That is a fascinating question. And it's up next time. I'm your host, Tony Ranke. We'll see you back here on Monday for that.